Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. For the last several weeks, we have been uh, walking through the life and the teachings of Jesus, and today we're going to continue that uh, sermon sermon series with uh, discussion on the parables. Jesus spoke in parables. He's spoken stories so often. If you have your scriptures with you, I'd encourage you to take them out. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. The reason we're doing a series like this is because Jesus is what humanity was supposed to be. I mean, that's something we've been saying throughout this whole series. Jesus is what humanity was supposed to be. But come on, let's, let's take an inventory of our personal life for just a second. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you live faithfully, continually like Jesus in all of your relationships, in your relationship to God and your spouse and your kids and to the earth and to creation and to animals and to everything else that we have been entrusted to love like? How many of us love perfectly and live rightly in all those relationships? I think if we're honest in our most honest moments... We fail continually at that. We're selfish. We've established our own kingdoms. We've established our own self-reigning hearts and our own self-reigning lives, and it creates a lot of chaos. And so Jesus is what humanity was supposed to be. And I, I say something often, uh, especially in the series, we've been saying it a lot, that, that your relationship with God is going to impact every relationship that you have. And so the closer that you can get to Jesus, the healthier relationships are going to be. The reason that there's strife in all the relationships that we just talked about, the reason that we're not living perfectly, the reason that there's chaos, the reason that there's strife is because somebody in that relationship is far from Jesus. We're not living in love for others. We're living selfishly for others. And so I'm serious when I say that, that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you are conformed to his image, the healthier your relationships are going to be. And so my prayer for every single one of us, and this is absolutely including myself, this is my prayer for myself as well, is that there would be more of Jesus in my life and less of me in my life. It's good for me. It's good for me. It's good for you when I'm closer to Jesus. It's good for our community when I'm closer to Jesus. Following Jesus not only make my life better, it's going to make me better at living my life. And so my prayer is that our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength would be aligned with God's heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you have not been around for the series, I really encourage you to catch up uh, via our podcast, Facebook, YouTube, any number of ways you can find all of the messages of this series. Today, we're going to look at the parables that Jesus told. And I hope that this theme of God's kingdom, not my kingdom come, not my will be done, God's kingdom come, God's will be done, I pray that this will be clear even more so as we look at the parables. Now, a parable is just a story being told. It, it's, it's a story. Story that Jesus is inviting us into, and aren't we storytelling people? How many of you guys love a good story? We have loved a good story since we were little kids, and we sat on our mom and dad's lap reading stories at bedtime, right? We are a storytelling people. If you listen to songs on the radio, what are they doing? They're telling stories for the most part, to the tune of $25 billion a year. When you watch a movie, what are they doing? They're telling stories to the tune of $27 billion a year. But these can't even compare to the video game industry. And what are you doing when you play a video game? 
you are taking that character on as yourself and you are participating now as that character living that story in the first person to the tune of 227 billion dollars a year you know it used to be the case that our elders would would sit around campfires and they would sit around at night and they would tell stories maybe some of you grew up sitting at night before televisions you know were all that available and you would sit around and your parents would tell you stories at night about their own life where they would sit and they would absorb the rich beauty or the narrative that transcends human history as people told stories of their past and brought them into the present but now what do we do we sit in front of television screens and we let fictional characters made up lands dictate the stories that we enter into and these can be powerful and beneficial but they can also be numbing and wasteful and terrifying studies have shown that video games especially cause great addiction and they have a great effect on the brain the same effect actually that cocaine addiction has on the brain if you look at the fbi's list of common descriptors of mass shooters the most obvious one is heavy and regular dose of first person shooter games where kids are rewarded to hold automatic weapons and kill as many fictional people as they can you pay attention manders kids and he's not okay good <clears throat> but we love our stories we love our stories for good reason we love our stories. stories are powerful and they have enormous power over us when was the last time that you laughed out loud it was probably in the context of a story probably in the context of an experience that you were having a story that you were living when was the last time that you sat in fright on the edge of your seat anticipating what was coming next it was probably in the context of a story when was the last time that a story made you cry for me, it was uh, at the movie A Man Called Otto. I don't recommend this movie for everybody. But the whole theater was sobbing at the end. Like, there was audible, like, crying. Everyone was crying. I was holding back tears, and my throat hurt so much, trying to hold back ugly tears watching this <laughs> But isn't it true that sometimes stories can also confuse you? They have enormous power over us, right? They invite us into something powerful and profound, but can't they also sometimes confuse you? I mean, how does it Cinderella's slipper stay glass after midnight even when everything else is turned back to normal? I mean, come on. How does Daniel LaRusso win the All-Valley with an illegal kick to the face? Confusing, right? How in the Ant-Man movies, for those of you who have seen them, how, 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 if mass doesn't change when shrinking size, how can Hank Pym hold a tank on his key ring that would weigh a ton? Plot holes are everywhere in movies, but don't plot holes require that you pay attention? They do. If you're not paying attention, you're not going to notice these plot holes. But there are plot holes in almost every single movie that you are probably ever going to watch, or every show you're ever going to watch. Have you ever been watching a movie or a show and you just got a little bored? Come on, let's be honest. And what do you do when you get a little bored watching a show? You take out a phone. You double screen. How many of us double screen pretty consistently? Let's just be honest. How... How much attention can you pay to the movie when you're also scrolling the internet? How much attention can you pay to the show when you're also playing a game? Stories demand our attention if they are to be understood and entered into. And isn't that the true power of a story, that we can be transformed into something other than ourselves when we're engaging them? If we're falling asleep while we're watching a show, if we're disengaged because we're on our phone, if we get up to go to the bathroom or to get something to eat and we come back and we're like what what just happened how did that happen like what we get confused if we're not staying engaged we lose the meaning if we're not staying engaged if we're not paying attention we lose the meaning 
In the movie The NeverEnding Story, one of classic 80s films, right? I love NeverEnding Story. Bastion enters a bookstore at the very beginning, and he's being bullied, and so he's, he runs and he hides in this bookstore, and he confronts the owner of the bookstore about a book that the owner is reading. And he asks, what's that book about? Oh, this is something special. Well, what is it? Look, your books are safe. By reading them, you get to become Tarzan or Robinson Crusoe. But that's what I like about them. Ah, but afterwards, you get to be a little boy again. Well, what, what do you mean? Listen, have you ever been Captain Nemo trapped inside your submarine while the giant squid is attacking you? Yes. Weren't you afraid that you couldn't escape? But it's only a story. That's what I'm talking about. The ones you read are safe. And this one isn't? Don't worry about it. You guys ever experienced that before? Stories demand, in some respect, that we enter into them. They don't permit us to remain outside observers. If they do, we get bored and we get disengaged and we go off and we fall asleep and we're not paying attention. And a parable, broadly speaking, is a story. It's a story with an invitation. These stories invite Jesus' audience, which is now us, into his vision for God's kingdom. These aren't so much about timeless truths as they are about something that is happening. And with each person listening, if we are careful to pay attention, if we're careful to stay engaged, we have a choice as to whether we will make this story our own or if we will abandon it and walk away from it. So after Jesus tells his very first parable, his disciples approach him and they're confused and they ask, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus, I thought that you would want your message to be clear. I thought you would want your message to be understandable. I thought you would want as many people to come and follow you because your message is so clear and so concise. But these parables, these stories, they're just kind of muddying the water. Well, this is why he tells them I speak in parables. Those seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they don't hear, they don't understand. They're here, but they're distracted. They're on their phones, they're checking the sports score, they're not engaged to what I'm saying, they're falling asleep on me, they're double screening. Now, I want them to wrestle, I want them to process, I want them to struggle with what I'm saying. I want people who are paying attention, I want people who are interested and willing to enter into this great narrative that I am writing, I want people who are willing to get risky and, and delve into something bigger than themselves. You know, everyone's got an idea of what I'm supposed to be about, Jesus would say. You know, everyone thinks that to bring about the kingdom of heaven, all you have to do is declare it, and then you have to raise up an army, and then you have to go to war, and you have to fight for it. As the Messiah, you know, I'm supposed to ride in on a white horse with a sword in my hand and liberate all you people from the oppressive Romans. I'm supposed to lead you into battle. Now, I'm speaking to you in parables because I want you to wrestle with a new vision of the kingdom. You have an idea of what the kingdom of God is going to look like, me riding in on a horse, declaring victory over the oppressive Romans, but I want... I want to declare, I want to provide you, I want to imagine a new vision for God's kingdom. I want to help you develop a new version of your Messiah, a new understanding of what it means to be king. But most people, he's saying, won't humble themselves enough to accept it. Most people aren't going to wrestle with what I'm talking about because they already have a preconceived understanding of who I am and what I'm supposed to be. So I'm weeding out the ones who don't really care, is what he's saying. I'm weeding out the ones who are falling asleep. I'm weeding out the ones who aren't paying attention. I'm weeding out the ones who are double screening on me. And come on, this is nothing new, he would say. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. 
They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And when they did that, I would heal them. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And the Israel Isaiah knew was wicked and hard-hearted, and there is a description of judgment that will fall upon them. But like every other description in judgment, it also comes with a promise, right? Isaiah is not done yet. God talks about this judgment that is coming, but then he also ends with this promise. As the terebinth and the oak leave stumps, leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. See, under the tree that is, that is being cut down, there is new life that's going to grow up underneath it. And what was that life? It's a holy seed. And one day Isaiah is saying, many years from now, a new seed, a new shoot, a new tree would rise up, bringing mercy on the other side of judgment. There is a mercy coming after the judgment. And so what does Jesus do? He tells a bunch of stories about seeds. That's what he does. He tells so many stories about seeds. He tells a bunch of stories about seeds to help his listeners understand that when the kingdom of heaven does in fact arrive, it will bring both judgment and it will also bring mercy. There is a seed being planted under the stump of God's judgment. Part of this judgment will fall upon those who are disengaged and falling asleep and not caring, too hard-hearted to listen, who aren't paying attention, who aren't caring. But certainly part of the point is that Jesus is going to go ahead and he's also going to be the focal point of God's judgment for the people. He's going to take upon himself the judgment that was meant for the people. In fact, this mystery of God's mercy in Jesus that no one understood during his life, that he was ultimately going to die on a cross, it's kind of like a living parable. People looked at Jesus, and he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. People looked at Jesus. He wasn't the king riding in on a a horse with a sword in his hand, ready to liberate them from the oppressive Romans. It took a lot of attention and took a lot of care and concern to look deliberately at who Jesus was and what he was accomplishing to understand that his life and his ministry was a living parable. So not only did they not understand his stories, they didn't understand his entire ministry. But in order to help those who cared and wanted to engage, in order to help those who who leaned in when Jesus told the stories, who wanted to know what Jesus was all about, He tells them many stories. Several of them are all about seeds. And today I want to look briefly at two of these stories about seeds. Here's how he begins in chapter 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like... Oh, oh, we we know what the answer... We we know what the kingdom of heaven is like. Of course, everyone listening to this would already have their preconceived notions. They would have said, we know what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a king sitting on a throne with a scepter in his hand. He will be the victor who overthrows the Romans and put Israel back into the seat of power and reestablishes Israel's golden age. That is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And that king, Jesus, is you. And so Jesus, raise up your army. We're here. We're waiting. Put a sword in our hands. We're ready to fight. And Jesus would say, whoa, 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 slow down. Don't jump to so many conclusions. Certainly the kingdom of heaven is about God's reign and rule, yes, but you are utterly confused as to what that means. No, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And they'll be like, what? Well, (laughs) what are you talking about? A man who sowed good seed in his field. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, a seed, a seed isn't strength. A seed is puny and a seed is small and a seed is insignificant. And Jesus, what are you talking about the kingdom of heaven being like a seed? Plus, do you know how long it takes for a seed to actually do anything? 
Are you telling us that you didn't call us here to raise up an army? I mean, Jesus, the pain, the agony we feel by the oppression of the Romans, when is it going to end? How will it end? Isn't that what the kingdom of heaven is all about? Your reign, and if you're going to reign, if you're going to be king, doesn't that mean war? Why are you being so obstinate, Jesus? There's all this oppression in front of you, so much being experienced, so much pain, so much injustice and bad things happening, and and you're just sitting there telling us to wait for a seed to grow up out of the ground? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. I mean, you can feel the tension and the angst building up and the confusion of Jesus' first audience. And doesn't it confuse us, too? I mean, if we're just honest a little bit, doesn't it confuse us, too, with all of our experiences upon the planet? I mean, we look at the world and we see tragedies happen. A lot of them happening as of late. It's a dark world. You read the news. Toxic train wrecks, devastating lives. Nations invading nations without provocation. You see terrorists disrupt and destroy societies. Families torn apart by abuse and addiction. We see everyday jerks choosing to be selfish, leaving a wake of stupidity in their path. And if we're honest, we are actually those everyday jerks. I mean, from the extreme to the seemingly insignificant, we wonder where God is in all of it, don't we? Look at the world and we see the atrocities and we wonder where God is in all of it. We wonder why he's not setting it straight. Why isn't he doing more about it? God, why don't you do something? Why don't you step in? Why don't you stop it? But here's what I wonder sometimes. When we, when, we, when we have that line of reasoning, when we walk down that train of thought, here's what I wonder sometimes. Would people really like it if God were to rule the world directly and immediately so that every thought and action were weighed and instantly judged and if necessary punished against the scales of his absolute holiness? Would we actually want that? Because here's the thing, like we look at, okay, there's genocides happening, right? And they're, they're horrible and they're atrocious. And God, why don't you step in and do something about that, that horrible pain? But, but you know, the wickedness in my own heart and the way I treat my family and the way I treat my neighbors and, and the evil that is embedded in me, don't, we just turn the other way. Go, go do something about all the horrors that's happening over there. But God, will you just turn the other way when it comes to me? You guys ever think about that before? We cry out to God wondering he's not, why he's not doing more, but, but the reality is if we want him to work over here, then he's also going to have to work in here. And for a lot of us, we're kind of hesitant to give up some of those things, aren't we? See, before you pray prayers regarding God's justice, first be ready to be purged of the wickedness in your own life. Pray for the injustices that are being committed in here before you start praying for all the injustices that are being committed out there. See, the key to understanding God's kingdom is that God's kingdom is not in contrast to earthly kingdoms, but it's in contrast to the self-made kingdoms, our own self-reigning heart. And every one of us, and let's just be honest, right? Let's just admit this, because this is where new life and restoration and redemption and reconciliation begins. We must admit, God, I have established a self-made kingdom. I have put myself upon my throne, and it is causing a lot of chaos. And it's, I don't, I'm not a good king, right? I don't rule justly. I don't rule well. I am selfish. When I am on the throne of my own heart, God, it's all about me. It's all about me, and it's all about me. And when it's all about me, it can't also be about the person next to me. And so in my selfishness, it's hurting people. See, 
man, this, this is the kingdom that we've established up against God's. It's, it's, it's my kingdom up against God's kingdom. It's my own suffering heart. Every one of us has declared kingship, and it's this selfish rule that is causing so much pain in our relationship. See, I am the problem. And so before we go declaring God's kingdom, first be prepared to surrender your own kingdom. And before we go declaring the life of God, first be prepared to let sin die in you. That's like planting a seed in the ground, and it may seem insignificant at the time, but with patient endurance, God's reign and rule will grow up within us. Jesus continues. See, while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did this weed come from? Why, God, in your kingdom that is being revealed, why is there injustice and pain and disloyalty? Why is there evil? And Jesus would simply say, because I have an enemy. That's why. There's an enemy. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, well, do you want us to go and, and pull up the weeds? I mean, come on. We know what to do with enemies. We see it all the time. Jesus, we're sick of waiting. We're sick of waiting. We've been waiting for 600 years for a Jewish king to sit on Israel's throne. We're done waiting, Jesus. Let's go. Let's reclaim the kingdom. Let's pull up those weeds. And this was always the tension in Jesus' day, right? Revolutionary groups rising up to, to rebel against the oppressive Romans, popping up all over the place who are sick and tired of waiting, eager to wage war against their oppressors. They were ready for God to act. And if God wasn't going to, to act, then they were going to act on, on his behalf. The point of Jesus telling the story is to help his audience understand that this is not how the true kingdom of God works. This is not how the true kingdom of God is going to come about because God isn't like that. See, Jesus says no. He answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together, right? The injustice along with the kingdom of God. Let both of them grow together until the harvest time. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. See, I cannot imagine that God enjoys the sight of his fields being overrun by weeds. I can't, I can't imagine that God looks at the world and is delighted by the fact that there's so much injustice and sin and pain. But I also can't imagine that he'd enjoy declaring harvest too soon and losing all of his crops in the process. See, this is a parable about patience. Our patience amidst trials, but certainly God's patience. Jesus wanted his audience to know that the kingdom of God was indeed arriving in and through what he was accomplishing, and it would come not like a bang from a cannon, like they were expecting, but like a seed growing up from the ground. Some might say that's a cop-out. You know, yeah, yeah, God, God's delaying his final judgment because, Jesus, you're not actually going to do anything. Yeah, it's slow, and it's like a seed because, you know, we're not actually seeing God actually do anything. And I think we sometimes get confused when we agree with such ideas. Maybe some of you have agreed with such ideas. You look at the word and you're like, yeah, God's not doing anything about this. That's why he calls it a seed because it's slow growth. Yeah, God's not actually doing anything. We look at the world and lack of judgment on it, and we think, God's uncaring. God's incapable to actually do anything about the injustices and the pain that we experience. But look at Jesus. 
for those of you who have ever actually read his life and read his stories and looked deeply at Jesus, you will find that it is impossible to think that God does not care. Every single page shows that God is restoring and redeeming his creation. And it culminates, of course, in the cross of Christ and the resurrection. God is very active. God is deeply concerned. He's battling evil and defeating it on every single page of the story and still warning that a final judgment is coming, that he's going to overthrow the enemy and that is yet to come in the future. You see, we who live after Good Friday, we who live after Easter, God has already acted decisively on our behalf. Today, when we long for God to act, just, just remember that he's already done so. And this isn't a cop-out, right? This isn't like, oh, okay, well, yeah, well. No, this is an anchor. And some of you know this is an anchor because you've experienced it as anchor amidst terrible storms. You can imagine, perhaps, that Jesus' audience was rather deflated from this conversation. I mean, we're just supposed to sit here and wait for God's kingdom? There's nothing we can do but sit here while God's kingdom grows up alongside all the horrible atrocities in the world? Come on, Jesus, put a sword in our hand. Give me a purpose. Give me a mission. I want to fight. And so, of course, Jesus comes along and he tells them another story. But before he tells them this story, we have to preface it with something we've already alluded to, that the kingdom of heaven has an opposition, and it is the kingdom that we've all established for ourselves. The self-reigning, self-made kingdoms that we've all established is in opposition to God's kingdom. And so Jesus keeps coming back to this reality that God's kingdom, it's in, it's in opposition to our self-made kingdoms. See, oppress, oppressive nations, they're just ruled by oppressive people, aren't they? It's a collection of oppressive people. And when given the chance, we all have the capacity for unprecedented evils to reign in our hearts, our minds, and our actions. And so you ask, what can we do? Jesus, put a sword in our hands, right? We want to go to war. We want to fight. What can we do? You want to do something of significance? You want to change your experience? You want to change the world? Well, well, here you go, Jesus would say. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. So take God's kingdom. Take God's reign. Take God's rule. Take his governance over your life and let it guide you. Take his law, his guidance, his way of being human and plant it in your heart and plant it in your context. Surrender your self-made kingdom and let God's kingdom grow up in you, in other words. If our reign is marked by selfishness, then God's reign is marked by self-sacrificial love. The giving of ourselves for the betterment of others. It's marked by giving what is rightfully mine for another person so that their their life might be improved, even if my life is diminished a little bit. It's marked by going out of our way so that another person might be blessed. It's, It's marked by dying to my selfish reign and allowing love to grow up in its place. And this love isn't just about, you know, warm feelings and feeling good about myself and... Warm thoughts, but, but love is messy and sacrificial, and it is ugly. It looks like the cross of Jesus. It's living in the trenches. And so Jesus would say, you want to put a sword in your hand? Here's the sword. You want to go to war? You want to battle? Here you go. Go to work tomorrow and allow God's reign to govern your actions. Go to work tomorrow and allow God's kingdom to inform the way you treat your coworkers. Wake up in the morning and allow God's rule to impact and inform the way you treat your kids and your spouse and the people in your household. 
Wake up in the morning, allow God's sovereignty, His rule, His reign to be your governing action throughout your day. Go sow that love, God's reign, in your context. That is the sword I will put in your hand, Jesus says. That's the task I've given to you. And you might think it's insignificant. Loving another human, really, Jesus, that's it? One act of love, just to go love people, that's what you really want me to do? Self-sacrifice, my betterment for the others, that's what you really want me to do? Jesus, yeah. You know, when you do this, it may feel like the smallest of seeds, he says. It may feel insignificant. It may feel like the smallest of activities. But you need to realize that when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants, and it'll become a tree. So that the birds come and perch in its branches. You might think it insignificant, but I tell you, one act of love, an honest, actual declaration of God's kingdom come in you, it may feel like a seed, but when it grows, it'll do powerful things. Powerful things in your community. I needed this message a lot this morning personally, because I know that I have a a heart that that drifts towards my own self reign I have a heart that drifts towards my own selfishness. I have a heart that drifts towards my own kingdom. And I know the pain that causes. I know when I'm selfish, and I know how it hurts my kids. I know how it hurts Emily. I know how it hurts our community. And so every day, I want, I want, to, be, I want to be giving of myself and surrender, and I want to abdicate my throne every single day. I want to take up my cross every single day. This isn't like, hey, you know what? I did that in seventh grade at Bible camp, and so I'm good. I don't need to do it every day. I, I do it on Sunday, so I re- do I really need to do it throughout the week? I said that prayer once upon a time, and, and I expected God to do something in me. And, and that's true, but, but for any of you who have ever had a garden, right? You put a seed in the ground. If you don't water that seed, if you don't protect that seed, if you don't fertilize that seed and give it sunlight, if you don't give it its proper nutrients, what's going to happen to that seed? Probably nothing. I need to die to myself every single day. I need to put myself in context that I'm being supported and encouraged every single day so that the, the kingdom of God that I've planted within me as I've surrendered, if I've surrendered, as I've abdicated my throne and say, God, you be king. I'm not good at it. So that that kingdom would grow up in me and I would mature and I would grow and as that kingdom grows, it'll grow into a huge, ginormous tree, the largest of all trees, so that all of the world might be drawn into it. And that is why Jesus spoke in parables. Because only those who cared would have paid attention. I'm going to say prayer for us as we conclude our, our time together. And my prayer, my prayer for you is that as the kingdom of God is sown in you, as the kingdom of God is sown in you, as the seed is planted, that it would grow to overwhelm your own self-made kingdom. And it would begin to produce fruit. It would begin to produce fruit. It would begin to produce fruit. And what you then sow into the world is the love of God. And that as you sow that love of God into the world, that you would find a receptive receptive and fertile ground so that the seed that it grows might grow and expand into something beautiful. And as you interact with your friends, as you interact with your neighbors and your community and your family, they may be drawn into the love of God through Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do this in us. For anybody who is still holding on to their own self-reigning heart, anybody who is still holding on to their own, their own kingdom, Father, 
I pray that you would first open their eyes to see the destructive path that it is leaving. I pray that you would open their eyes and open their experience to see how selfishness is at the very core of all of their problems. Their own self-made kingdom is at the core of all of their problems, Father. I pray that they would, they would surrender it. They would wave that white flag and say, I surrender, God. I abdicate. I'm going to get rid of this throne. I'm not good at this anymore. Will you start to start, God, start, 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 plant that seed in me and let that seed begin to grow? And Father, I'm not just going to leave that, that seed sitting dormant in the fertile ground of my surrendered heart, God. I'm going to put people in my, in my context. I'm going to surround myself with your word. I'm going to be in prayer. I'm going to come into a place like this, and I'm going to sign up for groups, and I'm going to learn, and I'm going to cultivate. I'm going to do everything I can so that that kingdom would grow, would grow, would grow, and I would mature into a person who looks like you because we know that the closer we get to Jesus, the healthier our relationships will be. We ask that you do this in us, Father, by the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being here, friends. Join us next week as we continue in the life and story of Jesus.